Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at texaspodcast.fm. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed. You don't need to change anything right now. But uh, just check it out. And by the time the report has been found to be false, some news story to keep up the public excitement has been invented. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elstrom. In the summer of 1860, drought, political strife, and paranoia led to a wave of violence and political uprising that stoked the fires of secession in Texas. Today, we're talking about the Texas Troubles of 1860. But first, what's your favorite Texas hat? My new favorite is the uh, the F- Chancellor Earhart's 40-liter hat from the uh, our last uh, Spare of <laughs> Summit episode. Hmm. And I love the idea of a 40-liter Stetson hat, yeah? <laughs> well, you know what? I want to give a shout-out to Art Horridge. And he was the guy who wore the tin oil worker helmet and was known as the ref neck at all of the Houston Oilers games. And I think that's a very oh, awesome yeah. Texan hat. Was it the, the I can't remember. Was it the hat that had the full? What is it? The full round? Yeah, um, it, that's yeah, that's an oil worker's helmet. Yeah, that's a field hat. Well, there's two types of oil workers there's, helmet. There's, there's, there's the, one the that has the full brim, and then there's the one that has the the front brim. The front brim one is for the guy who's carrying the clipboard. Okay. <laughs> so it's the worker hat. Yeah. In uh, at AT and T, we call that the safari hat. Okay. Yeah, it's your safari hat, Sean, but it's in silver. Yes. <laughs> well, my grandfather had my grandfather had the clipboard hat, so I will always have a special place in my heart for the style of Stetson hat that uh, LBJ wore back in his heyday. Personally, my personal hats, uh, my favorite is always going to be the orange Astros hat. Uh, whether it was the free giveaways when I was a kid at the Astrodome or the one I just bought a couple years ago. Something about that style. Astro's ball cap. Who'd have ever guessed that about you, Scott? I know. I'm predictable. Heading in 1860, secession talk was rampant both in the U.S. and across Texas. Several groups, including the Knights of the Golden Circle, were conspiring to wrest power from the Unionists in Texas and see secession through. To combat these forces... Brilliant Sam Houston tried a number of tactics, including beating the drum of military action against Texas' old foe, Mexico. Houston stated, quote, Texas is most interested in the proposed protectorate of the 2,000 miles of the border between the United States and Mexico, for 1,000 miles are on the Texan line. Mexico is powerless and faithless. I alone of 261 members of the Senate and House of Representatives who were present in December 1823 when the Monroe Doctrine was announced remain here to sustain it. But despite everything he did, that summer events would unfold that would set the state of Texas on an irreversible course. The summer of 1860 was an unnaturally hot and dry season leading to a drought in Texas. North Texas was hit especially hard. 
On July 8th, as temperatures soared to well over 100 degrees, a number of fires occurred, destroying the downtown area of the then small town of Dallas, half of the town square of Denton, and a store in nearby Pilot Point. The citizens of Denton believe the extreme temperatures, the drought, and the new phosphorus-based prairie matches, known colloquially as lucifers, because they had a tendency to ignite on their own, were to blame. Unfortunately, in Dallas, a more treacherous explanation was being extrapolated. Previously, in 1859, the people of Dallas had whipped and driven out of town two white Methodist preachers who were preaching abolition. And this was the talk of the town, creating even more fear and distrust of the northerner and the abolitionist. Emma Baird, the daughter of a local politician, recalled the day after the fire in Dallas, quote, small groups of men with inflamed minds swearing vengeance on the perpetrators of the crimes gathered on the street corners, in the streets, and in the courthouse. On July 15th, Charles R. Pryor, editor for the Dallas Herald, wrote an inflammatory letter sent to other papers in the state. Pryor was a, quote, proper Southerner and sought to whip the people of Texas into a frenzy. Here is the letter he sent to the Bonham newspaper. Dear Sir, I write in haste that you may prepare your people for the most alarming state of affairs that has ever occurred in Texas. On the 8th of July, the town of Dallas was fired and the whole business portion entirely consumed. Every store in town was destroyed. The next day, the dwelling house of J.J. Eakins was burned. After that, the residence of E.P. Nicholson was fired, but discovered in time to arrest the flames. On Thursday, the premises of Creel Miller, with a large amount of oats, grain, etc., were totally consumed. This led to the arrest of some Negroes and white men. A most diabolical plan was then discovered to devastate this entire portion of northern Texas, extending over to the Red River counties. White men, friends of the abolition preachers, Blount and McKinney, who were expelled from the country last year, are the instigators of the plot. The whole plan is systematically conceived and the most ingeniously contrived. It makes the blood run cold to hear the details. This whole country was to be laid waste with fire, destroying all the ammunition, provisions, arms, etc., to get the country in a state of helplessness, and then on election day in August to make a general insurrection aided and assisted by emissaries from the north and persons friendly to them in our midst. Their sphere of operations is districted and sub-districted, giving to each division a close supervision by one energetic white man who controls the Negroes as his subordinates, a regular invasion, and a real war. You and all Bonham are in as much gander as we are. Be on your guard and make these facts known by issuing extras to be sent in every direction. All business has ceased, and the country is terribly excited. In haste, yours truly, Charles R. Pryor. So this letter, the substance of which there is no other primary source evidence, went, as we would say today, viral. And just to repeat that, there wasn't any evidence of what this was. Buildings burned down in a drought. And, and, didn't, and, didn't they, and didn't they actually said that's what happened, right? Yep, that's exactly right. So, so it was 20 miles away. Everybody knew that it was the drought. But prior sensational allegations were published in newspapers across the state, spreading unsubstantiated rumors of slaves and abolitionists planning to also commit mass murder, poisoning, and rapes. Furthermore, more and more articles and warnings were being published like this. And here's an excerpt from The Messenger, another Texas newspaper, July 27, 1860. Quote, 
we suggest that in every town, village, and neighborhood, in all the surrounding counties, patrols of prudent, reliable citizens be at once appointed and a rigorous search instituted of the persons and cabins of the Negroes for concealed weapons, poisons, etc. We warn the people against overexcitement. That's, that's nicer than to warn that. Uh, regularly constituted law enforcement agencies stepped aside, of course they would, to allow these vigilantes to do their work. Although no hard evidence, again, we want to repeat, although no hard evidence has ever been found to prove the guilt of a single alleged arsonist, black or white, abolitionist or otherwise, many unfortunates of both classes were hanged for their alleged crimes and otherwise persecuted. Uh, one, another Texas newspaper, one of the Daily Picayunes, which was a common newspaper name at the time, reported, quote, on July 17th, the body of a man by the name of William H. Crawford was found suspended to a pecan tree about three quarters of a mile from Fort Worth. A large number of persons visited the body during the day. At a meeting of the citizens the same evening, strong evidence was adduced, proving him to have been an abolitionist. The meeting endorsed the action of the party who hung him. It was suspected that Crawford had given, quote, 56 shooters to the slaves. Now, it can be established from eyewitness reports that at least 30 blacks and whites died by the hands of the secretive vigilantes. But other reports indicated that the actual number of deaths may have been closer to 100. One of the preachers, a Methodist minister named Anthony Bewley, was pursued all the way to Missouri by a posse, brought back to Texas and hanged. And then his bones were displayed and given to children for playthings. It's a horrible, uh, macabre story, but it's true. Bewley's death effectively ended Northern Methodist ministry in Texas. The New York Herald wrote, Texas is no place for the Northern people just now, especially for itinerant peddlers and so forth. Such a class had better keep away. Their necks would be in great danger of breaking. It is in the character of peddlers or preachers that these abolitionists have mostly been traveling through Texas. By mid-September, the panic had run its course, and stories about the upcoming presidential election soon replaced sensational rumors about the cruel depredations that abolitionists supposedly had planned for Texas. But the damage was done. Southern rights extremists in Texas and throughout the South made skillful use of the Texas Troubles and fire-breathing speeches and editorials to whip up secessionist sentiment. They depicted Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate for president, as an abolitionist whose party was really behind the Texas Troubles. And many Texans who'd formerly been moderate on the issue of the Union now embraced secession in the event of Lincoln's election as the only way to protect their firesides from the horrors of insurrection. As much as any other issue, the Texas Troubles explain why a state that elected Sam Houston as governor on a Unionist platform in 1859 voted 3-1 to one for secession in March of 1861. Sam Houston had this to say on September 22nd, 1860. My weak condition warns me against giving vent to feelings which will come up when I behold the effort of whipsters and demagogues to mislead the people. Here in Texas, they convert the misfortunes of the people into political capital. Property has been burned in some instances, and here and there, a case of insubordination has been found among the Negroes. Occasionally, a scoundrel has attempted to run a Negro off to sell him, and all these things are charged to abolitionism. Terrible stories are put afloat of arms discovered, your capital in flames, kegs of powder found under houses, thousands of Negroes engaged in insurrectionary plots 
wells poisoned, and hundreds of bottles of strychnine found. Town after town has been reported in ashes. And by the time the report has been found to be false, some news story to keep up the public excitement has been invented. He continues, The people of the South have been filled with horror by these accounts, and instead of Texas being looked upon as the most inviting spot on earth, they turn from it as from a land accursed. Who are the men that are circulating these reports and taking the lead in throwing the country into confusion? Are they the strong slaveholders of the country? No. Examine the matter, and it will be found that by far the large majority of them never owned a Negro and never will. And these are the men who are carrying on practical abolitionism by taking up planters' Negroes and hanging them. They are the gentlemen who belong to the dueling family that don't fight with knives but choose something that can be dodged. Some of them deserve a worse fate than Senator Wigfall would visit on me. And sooner or later, when the people find out their schemes, they will get it. Texas cannot afford to be ruined by such men. Houston finishes, My sands of life are fast running out. As the glass becomes exhausted, if I can feel that I leave my country prosperous and united, I shall die content. To leave men with whom I have mingled in troublous times, and whom I have learned to love as brothers, to leave the children of those whom I have seen passed away after lives of devotion to the Union, to leave the people who have borne me up and sustained me to leave my country, and not feel that the liberty and happiness I have enjoyed would still be theirs, would be the worst pang of death. I am to leave children among you, to share the fate of your children. Think you I feel no interest in the future for their sakes? We are passing away. They must encounter the evils that are to come. In the far distant future, the generations that spring from our loins are to venture in the path of glory and honor. If untrammeled, who can tell the mighty progress they will make? If cast adrift, if the calamitous curse of disunion is inflicted upon them, who can picture their misfortunes and shame? But sadly, as we all know, Lincoln still was elected president. The South seceded. Texas voted for secession, as we said, on a three-to-one basis. Uh, Sam Houston was governor of the state when secession occurred, and he refused to accept the results of secession. President Lincoln offered him troops to keep Texas in the Union, but he declined. Uh, And when the time came to swear the oath of allegiance to the Confederacy, Sam Houston sat in his office and whittled and was removed from his office. Uh, He died in 1863, and his country, uh, his beloved Texas and his beloved United States, were still at war with each other. But if we listen to what he has to say, although it is uh, spoken in words that are timely, that are not necessarily of our time, there's a root of truth in there and a lot of wisdom in what he had to say, especially about believing the stories that you hear. So a big shout out to Scotty Fulce, who sent in the suggestion for an episode. Uh, It's one of those small pieces of Texas history that is not often taught, maybe not looked at as much, but is a very important piece of what turned um, the moderates in Texas from just being, you know, sort of on the fence to being completely for secession. Well, it was just it was an interesting because it was like one guy wrote this, um, you know, fantastical story, and p- preyed on a lot of sentiment, and then it just it spread like the fires that spread through Dallas that day. Yeah, and you know we've talked about Texas in the Civil War and Texas immediately after the Civil War, and I think this really does show 
it kind of sheds a light on why things were so virulent in Texas after the Civil War. Um, part of it was that uh, not a lot of destruction happened in the state, in Texas itself, and the people actually didn't have as much hardship as they did elsewhere in the South because they, they were able to trade pretty freely with Mexico. Um, so there wasn't there wasn't that edge of exhaustion uh, that existed maybe in a Tennessee or a Virginia, uh, but you know even during the war you know there was there was a lot of persecution against the slaves. A lot of slaves were actually uh, hauled were taken out of the rest of, of the eastern states of the South and moved into Texas in very large numbers. This is historical fact um, and. Uh, Texas at the time, you know, it's sad to say, but Texas at the time had a horrible reputation when it came to how the, the slaves were treated in the state. So uh, there's a lot of primary evidence, although it's, it's, it is circumstantial in the fact of the evidence of, uh, from the northern newspapers and the eastern newspapers. But, you know, at least in terms of reputation, uh, it, was, it was a pretty, pretty bad reputation that Texas had. I think it's also important that we think about this is an example of of a story out of control, right? As you said, Mike, one guy wrote the, wrote the story, and you know the people took advantage of a sentiment that was going on in one part of the state, and it quickly caught fire throughout the rest of the state. So this is an example of you know people need to check out their stories, and and in in 1860, it's difficult to check out your stories, and and then. 2017 it's a lot easier to check out stories yeah. so you know we don't like to get too political but we you know we want people to be have accurate history and i think the last thing i want to say on this is is that we talked about in that political myths of texas and in texas in the civil war we clearly talked about that the primary sources uh, you know this is this is this is not this should not be a controversial statement the primary sources say that the civil war when you get down to the root of it is about slavery this issue was not about states' rights. There's nothing about states' rights in this in the Troubles of 1860. It was a reaction against abolitionism and a fear of slave rebellion. Clearly, that is the root of the Troubles of 1860, and the Troubles of 1860 led to the Troubles of 1861 to 1865. When we did the original episode on the Civil War and Reconstruction, and you know, we were really conflicted on that. We did a lot of research. Sean did a lot of hard work on that one. And it really was interesting because um, a lot of the stuff that we sort of learned would only been pieces of the story. And going to these primary sources, really putting in the work on these stories <clears throat> has been interesting. Uh, like like the whole piece of, uh, probably the biggest thing I learned when you did that story, Sean, was when you talked about how, you know, carpetbaggers were mostly uh, teachers and social workers and nurses, and, and they were just people that were coming to help for the most part there wasn't these um <clears throat> this seedy under you know underhanded people that were looking to upset you know the the system and there's the same kind of um you know this weird dirty journalism here about like abolitionists and and the way that this is put together so you know, not not to get into in deep into the weeds on this, but it's just it's incredible that this story just took off and and became so ingrained in, in how everything went. 
I did find some other interesting facts when I started, like that uh, <clears throat> Texas is one of the lesser states to vote for secession, that there was actually significant portions of Texas that were against secession, some of the pro-German communities and a few other areas. Uh, but I also found interesting that in the presidential ballot in Texas, Abraham Lincoln was not on the ballot at all. <laughs> So anybody who voted for him was right, completely a write-in candidate. It really came down to uh, Bell and Breckinridge, and Breckinridge was a senator from Kentucky. And in this, uh, in the in the interesting piece of like talk, people talking about names, there's all these things named for Breckinridge all over uh, Texas, but he's from Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's important to realize that, you know, it's. <laughs> I was thinking about how this parallels uh, some trends of today. Um, back then, uh, people tended to hear things from the newspaper and they would believe what they heard because that was th there were very few places to get news and it took a long time for news to travel. Um, in today's you know world, it's kind of the opposite. There are so many sources of information that um, it's very easy to just pick up on whatever is the latest, most sensational thing that comes across your Facebook or your Twitter feed um, or gets forwarded in an email. And it, you know, it, it's very easy to just pick and choose the things that seem to confirm your own fears. And those fears can get amplified and, and things can kind of get out of control in your own head um, before you take the time to consider all the facts. Well, I think we've said it before and we'll say it again that, you know, this podcast, this project is about our love of Texas. And Texas, I love you, warts and all. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. And keep your eye on texaspodcast.fm coming soon. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share this on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Strama, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You know you love this show. You know you love Texas. So get out there and tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you, too, can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway.